a couple of very quick, um, quick housekeeping things before we set off. My name is Johanna, Johanna Stiebert. So the reason we are meeting here at Leeds is that together with Sarah Harvey, where is she now? There she is. I'm part of the grant called Abuse in Religious Context. But centre stage here today are our visitors, Anne and Amy, whom I'll introduce in just a moment. If there's a fire drill, it is not a So this is Dr. Anne Glegg, who's my collaborator in our project on sexual abuse in American Buddhist convert communities. And Anne is primarily, she studies American Buddhism and especially white convert American Buddhism. And her, her approach to research is primarily through ethnography. Hi, so this is Dr. Amy Langenberg of Eckerd College. Um, she's trained primarily as a textualist in classical Buddhism. She reads Pali and Tibetan. And Sanskrit. And Sanskrit. <laughs> and she has also been participating um, in the ethnography of the project. We really wanted to have this balance, or this, it's not even about balance, it's about the kind of dynamic interaction between um, the long historical tradition, um, authoritative doctrines, structures of authority, institutions, and um, living communities and how they're interpreting those doctrines, um, how they're responding to abuse. I think a really important part of the collaboration is kind of um, helping each other kind of process the emotional dimension of the project. Sexual abuse in religion is a very challenging, painful topic. And I, you know, feel I wouldn't have been able to do the project alone, either intellectually or emotionally. So we wanted to start the workshop, we wanted to encourage the participants to think about the ways in which their specific academic discipline um, was both helpful and also limiting in thinking about sexual abuse in religious context. Um, as Buddhist studies scholars, we found that our discipline um, orients us towards the topic in a certain way and it encourages to ask certain questions and not ask other questions. And we particularly found that we had to kind of go against the grain of our discipline to really include survivor perspectives. You know, we're both trained in religious studies specifically. And in religious studies, there's a tendency to look at communities and traditions through the eyes of, you know, whoever's in charge, whatever, whatever the dominant voice is. So if you go to you know, a temple, say, in Thailand, you're going to seek out probably the abbot, the head monk, you know, you're going to look at the main rituals they do, you're going to look at the structures of the building, um, you're probably not going to go around to the kitchen, right, and talk to the people who are making the meals, or unless you really have a focus on gender, you're not going to go and talk to the mechis or the women who are at the temple but do a lot of the, the kind of cleaning work. And so, you know, a really good example of a voice that is not only somewhat mar at the margins, but actually actively probably erased is the voices of 
people who've been harmed by the organization because for obvious reasons, the tradition, the organization, the lineage is not interested in elevating those voices. It's about that activism. When they were saying about the intervention, I don't think in religious subsidy, sociology of religion, biblical studies, but we're not yet very good at making that connection between activism and those disciplinary homes that sort of raised us. I think it's the feminist orientation, right? It's sort of like, what is my disciplinary home? Well, I sort of work in religious studies, sociology of religion, my questions are primarily driven by gender, and if you work in gender, and I think you are always dealing with questions of abuse and violence, and that's a feminist political decision for me to make and ask those questions, right? You know, how, how do we know what questions our survivors want to ask until we speak to the survivors, and how do we plan that ethically without having to go back and revise everything we're doing? So I think some of our institutional processes don't set us up to be really attentive to participants as well. No, I think what's been really interesting has been how we focus on a survivor-centred approach. Um, so some of the things that we were talking about in our group was um, the uh, basically the, the mistrust from survivors of the academy because it's survivor stories have not been centralised in academic research. So we have to do a lot of bridge building. I think there's a real problem in religious studies in, in relation to this question because the tendency is to um, dehistoricize religion, to essentialize it, to think in terms of founders and teachings and texts and concepts and um, you know the kind of grand um, narratives of salvation and, and those sorts of things rather than um, the lived experience of, of people who live in, in communities. In relation to the, the religion of, of Buddhism, I think there, culturally, there's a, a belief that Buddhism is um, a good religion. It doesn't suffer from the same problems of, of patriarchy like Christianity does. It doesn't have the, the problems of irrationality and revelation and, and all of those kind of contemporary secular critiques of, of Christianity. So Buddhism, you know, at least as it appears in the West, is sometimes figured as um, immune from those problems, a good religion that is about compassion, it's about connectedness and all of these kind of positive things, you know, meditation, seen as a kind of panacea for stress and, you know, all the problems created by capitalism. Um, um, the problem with that is that people miss that Buddhism is mediated through institutional structures um, and its doctrines also are vulnerable to um, many of the same problems that the doctrines of Christianity are vulnerable to, but I think that's not as well known. The second big section that we did uh, in the workshop is we looked at the chapter that we've written about doctrine, about the role of doctrine in responding to abuse or in perpetrating abuse in cases of abuse. Um, so looking at, at doctrine not as abstract ideas but as living ideas that actually function in communities in, in different ways. And we had three, we have an analysis where we 
uh, have come up with kind of three basic ways that that happens. The first way is you know, what we call weaponization. So doctrines that are activated within interactions in communities that actually, you know, um, foster abuse or create a condition where abuse is very easy to happen um, or is actually used to sort of lead someone or groom someone into an abusive relationship. So that's the first category. The second category is what we call normalization. And that's, you know, using very kind of seemingly benign standard Buddhist doctrines in a way that uh, makes the uh, makes the situation makes the abusive situation less visible makes it seem okay makes it seem like it's part of Buddhist practice. What I found so striking, I mean, I'm just what, the story that was so vivid for me in here was about the guru who was accused, uh, and he tells a story like a fable with a lion. Remember that bit? And he says it's as if somebody shouted probably mispronouncing it, Jal or something like that. And that's what we've got going on here. It's just this kind of hysteria. And he's just using the weight of his personality. I didn't see anything that was... Uh, yeah, I think something that I see in all of these quotes is there, they seem to be different techniques of taking someone's experience and putting it out of reach. So that instead of being able to say, this is what happened to me, and this is how I feel about it, it's it's inaccessible. Um, I think there was some there's some American movie that had this had this gag with like, excuses Buddhism. Almost it, it doesn't allow. We need to invest. I'm strongly in the opinion that we need to actually investigate the roots as as Amy does very well. The kind of roots. That this this does come from text practice. I completely agree. These aren't kind of because what I, what I trouble I get troubled about really sometimes is the thought that. You have like a pure tradition that has been corrupted by people, whereas actually I do strongly think there are the roots of these things and and huge amounts of evidence of the very damaging. And then the third type is what we call generative uses of a doctrine or. Um, doctrinal responses, which is a kind of active reinterpretation of doctrine or interpretation of Buddhist doctrine as an, a response to abuse that's survivor-centered. I'm interested in the generative ones. I mean, are they hard to find? They are not hard to find. They often are coming out of survivors who have stayed within a Buddhist context for all kinds of different reasons and are sitting with this situation, with this experience, and are also sitting with their Buddhist commitments and their understandings of Buddhist doctrine, which have been very formative for them. And so there's this kind of process, I think, that happens almost necessarily um, to, to create generative new interpretations of Buddhist doctrine. So we found many examples, actually. Yeah. The, the work around the doctrine was really interesting and in how parts of the doctrine it was often utilised to justify abuse and keep it quite hidden within that faith group. Um, and it was really interesting looking at the third scenario where we had the lady who actually um, quoted different parts of the doctrine to justify that actually this shouldn't be happening. So I think to, I do to that. Challenge in, it. To challenge it. And I think I do that um, myself in my therapeutic.
Baptists, that often, you know, there's, there's scriptures that we use, and that's not just for Sikhism, but other religions as well. And perpetrators will use those scriptures to you know, justify their behaviour, but often within those same scriptures will be other words that will demean what they're doing, actually. So the third area was focusing on a chapter that we've written on how do cult discourses function for survivors. Originally we hadn't planned to look at cult discourses, um, but we found in our interviews with survivors and with survivor advocates that they had found cult models very helpful in identifying um, and recovering from abuse. What you found in your work is that survivors responded to some of the insights from cult discourse. I mean, how did that sort of resonate with their experience, or is it is it that it resonated with their experience that um, that makes it powerful? Yeah, I think. I mean, it was really striking to us how how often survivors would refer to cult models, and so you know when we kind of asked them more, you know, we realised that you know for, for survivors. Um, it was really important, crucial actually, for them to realise that what happened to them was not an isolated experience, that it was just, you know, not an individual experience, but there was actually a pattern of abuse in Buddhist contexts. So I think what cult primarily does for survivors is it, it gives a structural analysis, it shows that these are patterns of harm that exist across different Buddhist, in, in our case, different Buddhist groups, that they could, you know, basically make sense of their own, you know, very confusing and distressing experience. To me, that's something that I've noticed a lot is that the idea of the cult model, the word cult and all of the meanings it's freighted with, that I've noticed that a number of the people that we've spoken to, it's been useful to them, at least temporarily, to identify abuse because it allows them to see the organization, the religion that they're a part of, as having these negative components as well as positive components. Now, as Anne said, I think that we would really like to emphasize that damage, violence, um, dark things are very much a part of religion, always have been, always have been part of Buddhism. So we would like to get away from, as Anne said, this distinction between there's good religion and then there's cults. But as, as Anne pointed out and, and articulated, we started to think about cult discourse because it really is useful to survivors as they're working their way through these experiences. That was a very interesting discussion uh, in the panel today. We were thinking about how the cult discourse was often one of the first discourses to openly speak about abuse, sexualized violence. And, and I think uh, it was also mentioned that there's been probably a change of language from uh, something or some group is a cult towards more like, well, some of these things are cultic, which are probably is a, a lot more useful in order to assess cultic dynamics as such. And, and particularly cultic dynamics within sort of mainstream religious traditions. Yeah, because if we look at it, probably we would also find cultic dynamics in traditions that we wouldn't necessarily call a cult. But that doesn't mean that the perspective or that, that lens as a, as a means to analysis wouldn't be helpful there as well.
That's lovely. Is there anything else you want to say? That's it. No. That was good. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, so give me three words about what was great about the workshop. Friendship, um, generosity, collaborative thinking, support, challenge and critique. Yeah, I just think, I haven't really got, it's not really a word, but it's really important to talk to scholars from different disciplines because all of our disciplines have limits and it's only through talking with, across disciplines that we can really see our own positionality and limits. So interdisciplinarity. Interdisciplinary. Yeah. <laughs> interdisciplinarity, maybe. I mean, do you see yourselves as activist scholars? Yes, definitely in this project. Yeah, not not ashamed of it. <laughs> that was a high five. Oh, yeah. <laughs>